you're able, please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. It's Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning to everyone, good to be with you. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, in particular a section on these three spiritual disciplines, these three uh, religious practices, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. And this section on fasting is actually quite a bit longer than the other two practices. And it really, I'm going to kind of divide it up into two parts. Uh, The first part is going to be focused on the motivation for prayer. Okay, and the second part, which will be next week, we'll talk about the pattern for prayer. So the why of prayer and the how of prayer. Now, why do we pray? Just like giving to the needy, we see that there are these practices we can do which are good practices, but can be easily mixed up in our motives of why we're doing them. That we can do like last week, the right thing for the wrong reason. And Jesus gives two examples of how you can get your motives mixed up. Let's start with the first one. We can put up the first slide. You just heard this passage, but one more time. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. In Jesus' day, Jews would have prayed typically three times a day. In the morning when they woke up, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and in the evening before they went to bed. This is known as fixed hour prayers. Maybe a little bit foreign to us, uh, fixed hour prayers are taking place all over the world uh, right now. Jews still typically pray three times a day. Muslims pray five times a day. Even Christians have something called the divine hours where they pray every three hours. Jesus has no problem with fixed hours prayers. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, uh, we'll actually read that Peter and John will go up to the temple at 3 p.m. to pray. So we get this, we see that uh, this pattern for prayer actually continues on after Jesus of praying at times of day. Jesus does not see this as a problem. Like last week, we see this word when, and we know that Jesus assumes that his disciples are praying, okay? What we're trying to get is, what is the motive for prayer? Why pray? And in this first example, the hypocrites, they're praying, and they're looking out to the side to see who's watching them, right? Their attention, their focus is not on God, it is on these people that are watching them. So if these fixed hours for prayer come along, say it's 3 p.m., and they're out somewhere uh, on the street corner in the synagogue where lots of people can see them, that's all the better because that's more people that can think Look at that person and think, wow, what a holy person. Look at them praying. 
So we should be seeing a pattern from last week. We've got a good religious practice, okay, praying. Jesus expects his disciples to do this. We've done, being done for the wrong reason, right? In this case, again, to impress others, followed by a reward. It's interesting, Jesus again says, you do this good practice for the wrong reason. There's still a reward. It's just not a good reward. And then there's another example we got. Here, Jesus moves from the Jewish people to the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish. He gives, again, the wrong way to pray. So these pagans, he says, are praying, again, a good thing, but they're babbling. They're going on and on in these long-winded, really gassy prayers. And it's, it's easy at this point to think, you know, what Jesus has a problem with is long prayers, in particular, long prayers that repeat themselves. So... The ideal in Jesus' mind is a spontaneous, uh, always original prayer that's never repeated. But again, if we, if, we, if we do that, if we're over-literal with Jesus' words here, we're missing the point he's making, okay? Jesus prayed really long prayers. In fact, we're told that he prayed all night. Jesus repeated his prayers. And at Gethsemane, the, the night before he's crucified, Jesus prays the same prayer three times. And in Luke's gospel, we even have this parable of this widow who keeps pestering this judge, just keeps going again and again. And Jesus uses this widow as an example of why we should pray and not give up. Okay, remember, we're trying to get in, what is the motivation for prayer? Why are we praying? And what seems to be motivating these Gentiles to keep babbling on is that they have this image of God which is really anxiety-producing. In their minds, God was pretty moody, pretty capricious. God was pretty anxiety-producing. Right? If, if God wasn't happy, nobody was happy. Right? Happy gods in their mind equaled happy people. And so there was this understanding that if you could get the mechanics right of the prayer, if you could get the words right and the length is right, you could keep God happy, and then you could extract from God what you wanted. In other words, you could manipulate God. Which, in Jesus' mind, again, is the wrong motivation for prayer. So we get these two examples of prayer, one from Jewish people trying to impress others, and one from Gentiles who are trying to manipulate God. And Jesus says the motivation behind those both is wrong. I suspect, of these two examples, the, the first one is probably less of a temptation for us. Um, I doubt any of you have been out at Mark's supermarket and three o'clock rolls around and your watch dings, you're reminded to pray, and right there in the middle of Mark's, you raise your hands and you start praying, just hoping that maybe some of those fellow shoppers will look at you and think, wow, that person's holy. More likely, they're trying to decide, should I call security or not? We might actually have the opposite problem. We might actually have the opposite point problem, but we're actually quite embarrassed to pray in public. Either way, you can have the wrong motivation, right? If you're trying to get attention, you're looking the wrong way. But if you're embarrassed, you're still looking around you, and you're missing what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to draw your attention to God, right? You can miss the focus of God in prayer either way. Now, the second example, I think, is more subtle, but I think definitely hits more that's closer to home. It's probably a more temptation. 
Okay? This is challenging because we do, are we to ask God for things? Yes. In fact, as we move into the pattern of prayer, you'll notice in the Lord's Prayer, it's one petition after the other. Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. Let your uh, kingdom come. Praying for forgiveness. It's one petition after the other. And notice in this passage, Jesus actually says, before you ask. He, this is what it says. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. Meaning, Jesus assumes his disciples are going to make requests to God. They're going to ask for things. Okay? It's not the asking the problem is the problem. It's the posture of the one who's asking. So it's one thing, for example, if one of my children comes up to me and says to me, you know, they're hungry and they say, I'm, I'm really hungry and I need something to eat. Okay? They have this posture of dependency. They rely on me. They trust that, that I will meet their needs. It's quite another thing if one of my children comes up to me thinking, how can I formulate this request that I can get my dad to feed me? Right? Both requests, the child is trying to get food, but it's a very different posture. One is uh, from a posture of dependency and trust. The other is of manipulation and a lack of trust. That child does not trust that I will feed him or her. Okay, again, we need to kind of keep reminding ourselves. We're going to try to walk this balance. Jesus is not teaching us that we should not make requests to God. What Jesus is teaching is that God is not a genie and prayer is not magic. God is not a genie and prayer isn't magic. Think with me what magic is. Can you put up that slide? Here's Andy Crouch's definition of magic. At the heart of magic is the belief that Given the right code words, abracadabra, being the school child's imitation of the magician's incantation, a human being can gain unquestioned control of the forces at the heart of the cosmos. See, magic at its heart is not about relationship or understanding or trust or dependency like a healthy child-parent relationship. Magic is about power and control. Someone's thinking, you know, that's good. I never say abracadabra in my prayer. But, but have you ever been tempted to think, you know, if I can just formulate this just right, if I can get just the right words, then maybe God will answer my prayer. When I take my son to, to basketball games in Salem, I have to always drive by a, a psychic who has set up a, a shop uh, in town there. And, and I think, um, often I think to myself, you know, who goes to these places? Who goes seeking divination? Who goes seeking, trying to guess what the, the future will be? But, but how many times have you heard someone say, you know what I did? I, I, I took my Bible and I opened it up and I put my finger there and I sought a word from God. I sought an answer. That's not a discerning way to determine the will of God. That's not a, a talking to God. It's not studying scripture it's doing divination. It's treating the, bad, the Bible like magic, like a tarot card. I open it up, and there's my answer. It's surprisingly easy to move from communing with God to having a relationship with God to something closer to magic. Of seeing the Bible as a tool or prayer as a tool to get from God what we want. Here's another example for you. 
You may have heard this famous quote from Archimedes, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. If you know something about levers, if you've used levers, levers are amazing things. Last year, we visited a museum in Columbus where outside is a giant lever set up, and on one end is a car and a big fulcrum and a lever at the other end, and, and, and it's set up in such a way that a child can actually pull on that rope and lift a, a, what is probably a two-ton car. Levers are amazing. But you know what can happen is you start to think of prayer as a lever. You know, I wonder if we can, if we could get a hundred people praying, if we could get a thousand people praying, if we could get 10,000 people praying, you know what we'll have? We'll have a lever big enough to move God. We'll have so much on this end that we will force God's hand. To be clear, should we be calling for prayer by people? Absolutely. Should we be sending out hotline calls? Absolutely. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to get you to understand is it's surprisingly easy to move from prayer to manipulation. From seeing prayer as communing with God to seeing prayer as a tool to manipulate God to give us what we want. And here's what happens when we start to do that. This is subtle, right? This is subtle. We've got to be aware of it. What happens if we get a distorted picture of God? That's the problem with the Gentiles. They have a distorted picture of God. Their God is capricious. You can't predict what this God's going to do. This God can't be trusted. This God makes them nervous. This God needs little formulas, little incantations to get, them to get that God to do what they want. We can have something similar happen. We can, we can kind of have an image of God as asleep at the wheel. And we got to yell up to God with enough voices to wake that God up who's asleep. And then we can conjole that God to do what we want. That's a shift. That's a lack of trust to who that God is. And now we're not praying to commune with God. We're not praying to develop a friendship with God. We're not going to God in need and dependence. We've got this tool in our back pocket that we're going to pull out, this magic spell, this big lever, which we're going to use to manipulate God. So if prayer is not a means to impressing people and prayer is not a means to manipulating God, then what is prayer for? Well, Jesus tells his disciples when they pray, not to do it out in the street corner, not to do it in a synagogue, but to do it in their room. The Greek here, it seems to describe this small interior room that doesn't have any windows and used used for storage. So think think of a closet, okay? Now again, let's, let's be careful not to be too literal here. Jesus is not saying the only place you should pray is tucked away by yourself in a closet, right? Jesus prayed in public. We have no record of Jesus actually praying in a prayer closet. What Jesus is trying to do, let's bring ourselves back. What's the motivation? Why are you praying? And Jesus is saying, you know, when you go to that prayer closet, guess who's there to meet you? It's a father. It's a heavenly parent. Now, we're, we're so, we, we use this language for God so much that it, it just probably bounces off us. You know, what's the big deal? But God has many names in the Old Testament. Yahweh, El Shaddai, Elohim. 
For example, we, were, we saw the name Yahweh a lot when we were in the book of Exodus. You see that name in the Old Testament 6,519 times. The name Father for God in, in the Old Testament 15 times. Right? This, this word that in Aramaic is Abba. This, it's not a common way for Jews to refer to God in such an intimate way. But now in the New Testament, Abba Father becomes the primary name for God for Jesus. Think about what Jesus could have taught his disciples. He could have said, you know, when you go to that prayer closet, you are to say, uh, your king who is unseen, who sees what is done in secret, will meet you there. You'll meet your king there. Which would have been accurate. God is our king. Jesus could have said, you know, when when you go to your prayer closet, my father will meet you there. Which would have been accurate. Jesus has a special relationship with God the Father. But he doesn't say that. He says, when you go there... Your father will meet you there. And like a heavenly parent, like a, like a good mother, like a good father, the one that meets you in the prayer closet already knows your needs. Again, Jesus has no problem with his disciples going to God with their needs, the request. He assumes they will. He wants them to do that. But Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples do that with the right focus, Right? The focus is not looking around to see what other people are thinking of you praying or to try to cajole God, who's moody and we don't know what he's going to do. No, it's not that. Why do, why do we go to the prayer closet? Because there we'll find the heavenly parent, the one who knows them, who knows their need, and who wants to be with them. Think about that. What an amazing thing that we just take for granted, that as we move into prayer, that the one who is before us, who listens to us, is the creator of all. I think I take that for granted, like most of us probably do. I have to remind myself as I'm praying, wow, the creator of the universe communes with me, listens to me, talks with me. See, I think in my experience with this line in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I've almost found it kind of discouraging. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. I hear that as, don't bother asking. Don't, don't bother God. Leave him alone. He already knows what you need. Or you can start to think, you know, if, if God already knows what I need, why pray? What's the bother? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't trying to discourage us from praying. He wants to give us the right motivation for prayer. And Jesus is saying, when you go to the prayer closet, the one who meets you there is your heavenly parent, your heavenly father, your heavenly mother, who may be unseen, but sees you, who knows you, who knows your deepest needs better than you do. That's good news. I have four kids, especially when my kids are younger. They often do not know what they need. Guess what? I'm going to be 43 soon, and I often don't know what I need. We're not very good about knowing what we need. We've got desires. We might think we know what we need, We're not very good at really knowing what we need a lot of times, particularly when it comes to our relationship with God. But there's somebody there at the prayer closet who's waiting, who knows what I need, who knows what you need before we say a word. Meaning we don't have to keep rattling on with our long prayers, afraid that God is asleep, hoping that we can just wake up that God so that God will finally listen to me and care about me. Now, this is a God who, when I arrive at the prayer closet, this God knows me, this God knows my needs, and therefore, I can be still, I can be silent. 
There's a reason why the, the spiritual masters for hundreds of years and centuries, the people who have grown deeply in, in mature ways in their prayer life, always, almost always talk about that prayer is a movement from words to silence. That the trajectory of growth in prayer is actually to less words. There's a great story about Mother Teresa who was being interviewed by someone. And, and uh, the interviewer asked Mother Teresa, you know, what do you say to God? And Mother Teresa answered, I don't talk. I simply listen. And thinking he had understood her correctly, the interviewer then asked, ah, what is it that God then says to you in prayer? And she replied, he also doesn't talk. He also simply listens. And there was a long silence. The interviewer seemed a bit confused and didn't know what to say until Mother Teresa finally said, if you can't understand what I've just said, I'm sorry, but there's no way I can explain it any better. You can put up that next slide. This is Rich Villadas writes this. At the core of silent prayer is the commitment to establish relationship with God based on friendship rather than demands. Based on friendship rather than demands. Is there a time to ask God for things? Absolutely. Hear me out. Deepest motivation should not be to get something from God, but to commune with God, to nurture our relationship with God. Not impressing people, not, not even just communicating information to God as if God doesn't know that, and certainly not manipulating God, but expressing a relationship with the trusting that the God is our heavenly parent. That's what Jesus is teaching here. When you arrive at your prayer closet, you don't need to be anxious like the pagans. You know who this God is because I know who this God is. This God is Father. You may arrive at the prayer closet like a child arrives at her mother's lap, confused, hurting, upset. But that child, if it's a good mother, knows in their, 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 their deepest being, that that mother loves her, that that mother is trustworthy, and therefore that child can curl up on their mother's lap or their father's lap, and the child can just lay her head on her mother's chest. That's a different image than the pagan image. That child doesn't have to scream to get their mother's attention. That child doesn't have to wear down their mother just so their mother or dad will finally give them what they need because that child knows who's there. It's a parent who loves them and therefore they can rest in silence. That's who's waiting for you in the prayer closet. This is really a fairly simple point I'm trying to make in this sermon, but I find it very hard for us to understand. So let me say it as clearly as I can. Our deepest motivation for prayer is not to get something from God we want, but to be with God. There's a reward to that. There's, again, two rewards in our passage. The first word, reward, Jesus doesn't think is very much. You impress people and you get the reward you deserve. But there's another reward, communion with God. Catherine of Siena says this, the path to heaven lies through heaven, and all the way to heaven is heaven. I love that quote. All the way to heaven is heaven. What does she mean? I don't know for sure, but this is what I take it to mean. Sometimes I think we move through life thinking 
that heaven is this thing out there, that our life here will end and then heaven will begin or the life to come will begin. And there's not much connection between those. But if all the way to heaven is heaven, that's a different way of understanding. Because you know what I think is waiting for us in the life to come? What's going to be so mind-blowing that we won't understand it is communion with God. And prayer gives us a little taste of that. The God who shows up in the prayer closet is unseen. But one day in the life to come in heaven, we will see that God. All the way to heaven is heaven. We get glimpses now. We're forming ourselves into people who hunger more than anything else to commune with God. That's our path of growth. Does that mean that prayer doesn't do anything? Is prayer just about relationship? No. No, I don't fully understand it. But in some mysterious way, God invites us to dialogue with God in which God then takes those requests and builds them into God's decision-making. How that works, I have no idea. I believe prayer changes things. I believe that it's going to be really hard for us to have a vibrant prayer life if we don't believe that. But I also believe that if you think prayer is just a tool to get God to do something, you're missing the purpose of prayer. I'll give you an example. My wife does a lot for me. Hopefully I do a lot for her too. Think about this. Think about this. this. This is our relationship. Every time we sit down, it's a business meeting where I tell her what I want her to do and she tells me what she wants me to do. Is that a loving relationship? That's part of a marriage. That's part of love. But imagine if every time I was with Krishana, it was just this business meeting where I let Krishana know what I wanted her to do. A mature relationship is one where you learn to just delight in the presence of another. We know this. Think about your closest relationships. Think about your spouse or your friends. You don't want to get something from them. You want to delight in their presence. And yet often we forget that when we commune with God, when we pray with God. Prayer is about delighting in God, knowing that God loves us. So let me finish with one other question. If the reason why we pray is to commune with God, is to be with God, is to nurture our relationship with God, then why don't we pray? Remember, Jesus says uh, at the the beginning is when you pray, Jesus is assuming that prayer is just worked into the rhythm of your life. But if we're honest, for many of us, it's not. Why is that? There's a lot you could say, I could say, but let me offer a few thoughts. First one, prayer can be boring. If you're not a prayer, when you begin to pray, don't be surprised if you're quite bored. Don't be discouraged. In my own experience, I can only speak from my own experience, in my own prayer life, there are moments of breakthrough, there are profound moments, there are moments when it seems like prayers were answered, there are times in prayer I feel very close to God, and those are far outnumbered by moments of boredom. And that's okay. That's actually quite good for us. Because the way prayer works is it works on us slowly. Remember, prayer isn't magic. Magic wants what magic wants now. That's not the way prayer works. Prayer transforms us, but it does it slowly. One of the ways prayer transforms us is that we arrive with what we think our needs are, 
We arrive at the prayer clause, and there's God who knows what our needs really are, and God begins to reshape our needs and our desires. God begins to show us that a lot of things that we thought we needed, we don't actually need, and a lot of things we didn't need, we do actually need. And so part of what we need to learn in our prayer life is how do we listen to God? Prayer is often boring, in my experience, but there's a reward, right? Jesus says there's a reward, and I think, I believe what Jesus says. But guess what? The only way you find that reward is by praying. You can't listen to a sermon about prayer and really get anything out of it if you don't pray. You can't read about prayer and not pray and get anything out of it. The only way you get the reward from praying is by praying. Okay, that's the first reason. Don't be discouraged if prayer is boring. Second reason why we don't pray, we just don't have time. We got a lot to do. We're in a hurry. I heard someone say recently that, you know, Jesus, we profess as God in the flesh. When Jesus was on earth, he never went faster than three miles an hour, which is the speed at which we walk, which means the pace of God is three miles an hour. Pretty slow compared to us. Whereas N.T. Wright says, it's only when we slow down our lives that we catch up with God. We're off in a hurry. God often moves very slowly. I, I firmly believe that hurry is one of the great spiritual enemies, the great enemies of the spiritual life today. You know, I've been struck. Columbiana, Mahoney County, not exactly the Big Apple, New York City, Right? You'd think, like, if any place, like, the pace of life would be kind of chill here, relaxed. That's not my experience at all with people. What's the response you typically get when you ask how someone's doing? Busy. Busy. Everybody's busy. Everybody's got a packed schedule. Prayer is a discipline. Talked about that last week, just like giving to the needy. It's very unlikely you're going to find yourself waking up in the morning and praying. Think about it like you've probably heard all this advice come out about New Year's resolutions. And I can guarantee you nobody who knows what they're talking is saying, here's your plan for exercise in the New Year. Go to bed, wake up. If you feel like exercising, you should exercise. If you got time and you got the desire. Nobody gives that advice. Like, what's the advice? Like, you, you get your clothes ready the day before, you decide the day before, so when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to exercise, everything's in place to get you out the door. And there's a reward. Prayer is a discipline. It's a habit. Remember, Jesus is talking to disciples where prayer is a rhythm three times a day. I don't think there's such a... I mean, we're probably not going to get into quite the fixed prayer that they are, but I would encourage you to fix a time in your day for prayer. It's just unlikely it's going to happen daily if you don't have a rhythm, if you don't have a fixed time. For most of us, that's the morning. Right? There's a lot I could say about that, but I would highly encourage you to make that time the morning. Otherwise, it's going to get pushed out, and it's not going to happen. Remember one other thing, though. Go back to exercise. You don't go from couch to marathon in one week. Okay? If you, have, if you have zero, okay, I'm not, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad here. If you, have, if you don't pray at all, I'm talking to men and women. If you don't pray at all, sometimes it's our sisters, I think, that have a little more vibrant prayer life. So I'm talking to you brothers right now. I'm talking to you brothers right now. <laughs> I got a couple people looked up. Thank you. Brothers, it's time for us to pray. 
It's time for us to not just have our sisters be doing all the praying around here. It's time for us as men to pray. It's time for us to have a discipline of prayer. Okay? If you have zero prayer right now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just saying, can you start with five minutes a day? Can you start with that? That's not where you want to end up. You want to build up. You want to be at 30 minutes or more. But start with five minutes. And at least give some of that part of that time for silence. Okay, one more reason. One more reason. Why don't we pray? I think we're a little bit nervous about who's waiting for us in the prayer closet. I think some of us have our own distorted picture of God because we have parents who did not show us what a good heavenly father and a good heavenly mother are like. So you know who's waiting for us in the prayer closet is a parent ready to scold us. There's a parent who's disappointed with us. We don't want to go to the prayer closet because the one that waits for us in the prayer closet is angry with us. That God might be unseen, but that God sees us. And if, if that God peered into my heart and peered into my mind, if that God really knew what I was like, that God would not want to meet me in a secret place. And if that God did, it would be to scold me. That is not the God that waits for you in the prayer closet. There's maybe no more beautiful image of the father than the father in the parable of the prodigal son. You know that story. The son takes off. The son hasn't seen the father in a long time. The son hasn't communed with the father in a long time. And where is the father in the story? Scanning the horizon, waiting, longing for that child to come back. What's so interesting about that parable is the son comes back and the father embraces the son before the son can say a word. See, what the father is most interested in, most concerned about, and most happy with is that the son is home. Maybe it's been a long time since you've met God in the prayer closet. Maybe you think God's disappointed with you. Maybe you need to get that image out of your mind and the image of the father and the prodigal son who waits, who just wants you to be home. 